Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Therefore give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people he has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go, make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure. Along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here, for he has risen just as he said. Come see the place where he was laying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they came and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together and the other disciple ran, fa ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrapping lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came, following him, and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrapping lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple, who had first come to the tomb, then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that said he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and so, as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came, announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Now while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, 
they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, You are to say, His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed, and this story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priest and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us, When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came, saying they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart, to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going farther. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us. For it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went to stay with them. And when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and he blessed it. And breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they got up that very hour, and they returned to Jerusalem, and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, The Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. They began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread.
While they were telling these things, he himself stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While they could still not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of a broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands, and reach here your hand and put it into my side, and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Oh, Father, the historical account of the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, 
leaves us breathless. He is risen, and he is ascended and seated upon the throne of his Father, where he always lives to make intercession for us. Praise God, Jesus has risen. It was for our sakes that you crushed your Son, O Lord. It was to glorify yourself in our eternal salvation that you raised him from the dead. It is because of the resurrection that the church meets today, Sunday, every Sunday. It is because of the resurrection that believers have great hope, even in the most dire of personal circumstances. And it is because of the resurrection that sinners can be made whole. Oh, Holy Spirit, I pray, come now and make dead hearts live. Empower your word to accomplish the task that you will accomplish this morning, I pray. Lord, save some. It is to that end this morning that we gather and that I preach. Make it so, Father, for your glory and for the sinner's eternal joy. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of all human history. It is the most important event that has ever happened anywhere, at any time, since the very beginning of creation. And it should be important to you. It should be deeply important to you. Why? Well, let's spend a few minutes asking, answering that question. Why? Why should the resurrection be important to me? Number one, the resurrection of Jesus Christ should be important to you because God exists and you are accountable to him. The resurrection should be important to you because God exists and you are accountable to him. The psalmist wrote these words, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell in it. The fact is, my friend, every person on this planet instinctively knows that God exists and that we are accountable to him. We see the evidence of this existence of God everywhere we look. The sun, the moon, the stars tell us what we already know. God exists and we are accountable to him. The planets, animals, mountains, canyons, and oceans and even the existence of man himself tells us what we already know. God exists, and we are accountable to him. In the beginning, God created the heavens in the earth. God exists, and we are accountable to him. The apostle Paul, you'll remember, told the philosophers in Athens what they already knew. But the God who made this world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life 
and breath and all things. The first reason that the resurrection should be important to you is because God exists, God exists, and you are accountable to him. Secondly, the second reason you should care about the resurrection is because of something else that you already know instinctively, and that is that you are a sinner. You are a sinner. Why is that a problem? It's a problem because God is not a sinner. God is holy. He is infinite in his perfection of holiness. There is nothing in him that remotely even resembles gray. He is pure light, pure beauty, pure holiness. There is none like him. Our problem is because we are sinful and in desperate need of a relationship with God, nevertheless, it is impossible to have a relationship with God because he is holy and we are sinful. We are as separated from God as a dead person is separated from those who are alive around him. Everyone is Everyone in this room is guilty of breaking God's law. Everyone, without exception, even the man who stands behind this desk, falls into the same lot. We are all sinners. The Apostle John says it this way. Everyone who practices sin practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Do you realize that you practice lawlessness every day? You probably practice some lawlessness on your way to church today. You either by speeding or by the attitudes of your heart, or maybe you said words that you would never want anyone in this room to hear, or you thought about things since you have gotten up this morning that you would be incredibly embarrassed by if they were to be put up on a screen this morning. We are inherently sinful. And so you see, we were created to live in relationship with God, but the fact is, the fact is, you love your sin more than you love God. You love your sin more than you love God. And that's made obvious by the fact that we sin every day. Now, I suspect some of you don't believe that you're lawbreakers. Not in the truest sense. You believe that you're pretty good and that God would accept you for being pretty good. You're hoping that when you stand before God, you'll say, God, I was a good citizen. I was a good father. I was a good child. I was a good wife. I broke the speed limit from time to time, but really, I've never done anything really bad in terms of breaking your holy law. I think many people believe that. And God would say just the opposite. I mean, just think about, just think about the Ten Commandments. Have you, ever, have you ever taken something that doesn't belong to you? Have you ever taken something that belongs to someone else? Sure, everybody has. Everybody has. What do we call a person who takes things that don't belong to them? Thief. Do you know what God's word says? You shall not steal. If you've ever taken anything that belongs to someone else, you've broken God's law. How about this? Have you ever used God's name or the name of Jesus Christ in vain to swear or to cuss 
Or maybe, maybe in your texting, someone said something to you that was really cool, and you wrote, you wrote back, O-M-G. If the G stands for God in your text, guess what? You've just used the name of the Lord, your God, in a text message. Vain, empty. God's law says you shall not use the name of the Lord, your God, in vain. Have you ever looked at a woman or a man with lust in your heart? Jesus explains that when you look at another person with lust, you've committed adultery with that person in your heart. And God's law says what? You shall not commit adultery. You see, beloved, if it's, if it's wrong in the act, it's wrong in the desire as well. If you break the law in the act, you break the law in the desire as well. Or how about this? Have you ever lied to another person? You ever told a half-truth? God's law says, you shall not bear false witness. You shall not lie. And so you see, when you really think about it from God's perspective, we are all lying, thieving adulterers who have taken the name of the Lord God in vain. And that's only for the Ten Commandments. You see, we are all lawbreakers. And every one of us will one day have to stand before the sovereign God who created us and give an account for our sin. And some of you are thinking right now that surely God will look at you on that day and see all of the good that you have done and, and say that because of the good things that you have done previous to and since you violated his law so many times, he will weigh it all out. You're good with your bad. And, you'll, and he'll say, you know what? You've been more good than bad. But you know what? Not even a human, imperfect legal system does that. Ask any policeman in our midst this morning. The reason they have a job is because every man is a lawbreaker. But let's take this. Let's take this and think about it for a minute. If someone were to break into your house tonight, they break into your house, they beat you up, they steal your stuff, and they run away. What do you want? What do you want? When the police comes, what do you want? You want, them, you want them to catch the guy. You want justice. You know why you want justice? Because God is just, and you bear the image of God. You bear the image of God. Whether you're a religious person or not, you bear the image of God in at least this sense. You want justice. And let's suppose the guy did get caught. He's caught by the police, taken to jail. He's brought before the judge. And the judge says, hey, I've been looking over your record. And um, you've done some bad things here. You've, you've got some marks on your record. Obviously, you've broken the law before. However, I see all this good that you've done as well. And um, I'm just going to overlook your crime. You're free. How would you evaluate that judge? Good judge, bad judge? Bad judge. Listen, any rogue judge can look at a criminal and say, I forgive you. But not if that judge is holy. Not if that judge is altogether righteous. 
He cannot overlook sin. A judge who would be, play fast and loose with justice like that should be thrown out. The criminal deserves justice for the crimes he's committed, regardless of anything else he's done. Listen, beloved, God is a good judge. He always has been a good judge. He's a holy judge. Therefore, he cannot overlook sins against his law. And that puts everyone, that puts everyone in a terrible situation. This puts us all in a terrible situation. The third reason you should care about the resurrection is because, is because of something we learn from Scripture, namely that sinners deserve God's wrath. In fact, sinners stand under God's wrath. Whether we believe it or not, that is our situation before God. Even now, as we live and breathe, we are under God's wrath if you are not reconciled to him. Paul explains this in Romans chapter 1. He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and, un and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You can say until you're blue in the face that God doesn't exist. You can suppress that and suppress it and suppress it, and one day you'll know what you already know. That's a lie. And the only reason you suppress it is because you love your sin. God's word tells us that this situation is one that will have eternal consequences, not just temporal consequences. The temporal consequences are these. God is pouring out his wrath on people, and this is how, by allowing sinners to have exactly what they want in terms of their sin, and then suffering the temporal consequences for it. Romans 1 explains that explicitly. But it's not just temporal consequences that matter. It's eternal consequences because unless God does something to change our situation, we will spend eternity separated from God in a place the Bible calls hell. That place where the furious burning justice of God flames on and on and on and exacts justice for eternity. And that will be the case no matter how small we believe our sin really is. We all tend to minimize our sin. We don't like to feel bad about ourselves. We like to feel good about ourselves. We like the idea of self-esteem. That's why the self-esteem gospel took on such hold back in the 70s. We love ourselves. And we don't like to feel bad about ourselves. So we may feel bad about our sin for a little while, but it won't last long. You'll get over it. And the people you've sinned against or people that you know who know that you have sinned, they'll get over it too. But that doesn't change the position of the law. I was reading in Proverbs just yesterday in my quiet time, and this is what I read. It's amazing. It fits perfectly here. The author of Proverbs writes, People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. People don't. But if he's caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all of his goods, all of the goods of his house. He'll lose it all. My friend, this is the nature of law. 
It demands justice to be served when a crime is committed, no matter how good a person has been otherwise. If a thief is caught, the law will require all the goods of his house. And here's the thing. Every one of us is already caught. We've already been caught red-handed. Surely we don't think we hide our sin from an omnipresent, omniscient God. As David said in Psalm 139, where can I flee from your presence? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I go to the deepest part of the sea, behold, you are there. We live in the atmosphere of God. He is everywhere. He's everywhere. We've already been caught. We've already been caught, and the judge knows it. He knows every aspect of your sin. You have forgotten most of it. But oh, he remembers. He remembers. Nevertheless, my friend, it is not God's desire for you to suffer the wrath you deserve. It is not God's desire for you to suffer the wrath that you deserve. Do you get it? He loves you. God loves you. This infinitely holy God whose law demands justice against every sin, he loves you. He loves you. And he desires reconciliation. He created you to glorify him. He created you to live in fellowship with him. But what can be done? Our situation is helpless. It's helpless. And you know what, beloved? Until you come to the place where you realize that you have no hope, there will be no hope. The only place, the only way you'll ever have hope of salvation is if you come to the end of your rope. I can't quote it for you, but there's a passage in Isaiah where God tells his people, I would have saved you, but you refused to be hopeless. I would have rescued you, but even when I disciplined you, you failed to repent. You did not become hopeless. The first step toward having hope that you will be rescued from your situation is to see your terrible plight and say, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I have no hope. I have no hope. And that's our situation. God is sovereign. We are sinners. Our situation is hopeless. But praise God, that's not the end of the story. The fourth reason you should care about the resurrection is because it proves that God has sent a Savior. The resurrection proves that God has sent a Savior Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures, and he was buried, and he, that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. You should care about the resurrection. Considering your situation, that you are under the wrath of God, you should care because it proves that God has sent a Savior. You see, my friend, the bad news about your situation is really, really bad. 
And that's what makes the gospel so very, very good. If God doesn't do something to change your situation, you will face judgment. You will be found guilty. You will be punished in hell. But the good news of Easter is that your situation can change. Your situation can, in fact, change. You don't have to experience eternal wrath, the eternal wrath that you deserve. You don't have to experience that. He loves you more than you can possibly comprehend. How can you know that God loves you? Think about what he did for you. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on your behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God treated Jesus as if he lived your wicked, sinful, guilt-ridden, shameful life so that he could treat you as if you had lived Jesus' perfect, holy, eternally blameless life. It's the great exchange. That's the gospel. That's why Jesus was put on the cross on Good Friday. That's why we met this past Friday night, to glory in what God did that day on the cross. That's why Jesus died. John 3.16 says this, In this manner God loved the world. He gave his Son, the only one, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Everlasting life. And so you see, my friend, God loves you. And he has provided a way for you to be forgiven of every sin you've ever committed and to be reconciled to God. I don't know what gospel you've heard before you came to Calvary Bible Church today. You may have heard that the gospel is God can make you happy or God can fix your marriage or God can turn your relationship with your children around and set it straight or God can make your business function better or God can make you rich or through God in Jesus you can have a new car. It's not the gospel. God doesn't promise any of that. What does he promise? In Christ, all of your sin can be forgiven. And you can be reconciled to God. That's the gospel. Any of the benefits of the gospel come after that. If you don't have reconciliation with God, and there is nothing else for you from God except eternal wrath. How do we know that Jesus died in our place? One answer. Resurrection. We know that Jesus accomplished everything God sent for him to do because of his resurrection. This is why the Apostle Peter said this. I love this verse. 1 Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Through the resurrection. That's where our hope comes from. Beloved, you don't have to be afraid of him anymore. There's no need to continue hiding your sin and shame. 
Jesus bore it all on the cross. He paid for your sin. He died the death you deserve so that you can live. And then he rose again to prove it. And so the resurrection of Jesus proves that God has paid for all of your sin in the death of Christ. He died the death you deserve so that when he rose again unto life, you rose again unto life if you belong to him. He might be saying, okay, I buy that. I've heard this most of my life. I've not done much with it. But I believe that God is sovereign. And I believe that I will have to give an account of my life before him someday. I believe I'm a sinner. And now that, now that you describe it like this, I believe my situation is pretty hopeless. I believe God sent a Savior in the person of Jesus Christ who died and rose again so that I can be forgiven and reconciled unto God. But what's left for me to do? How do I do that? How do I lay claim to that? The final reason you should care about the resurrection is that it secures for you a better master. It secures for you a better master. Listen to this. You are what you are because you serve whom you serve. You are what you are because you serve whom you serve. Apart from the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit in changing the sinful heart, all men serve themselves. And all men who serve themselves, Paul says, are actually serving Satan. And if you're following him, you're going to go where he goes. And we know in the end where he goes. You don't want to go there. According to the Bible, we all serve the desires of the flesh. Galatians 5, that passage of Scripture, before the fruit of the Spirit is the deeds of the flesh. The whole battle against the flesh and the Spirit is a battle of our desires. Then it's already been established that what you desire is not God, but his gifts. You desire sin more than you desire God. Most of us have believed the world's lie that the best thing a person can do is, you heard this? Follow your heart. Follow your heart. How's that for counsel? Follow your heart. Be true to yourself. Can I just let you in on a secret? That's disastrous advice. That's the worst possible advice you could ever listen to. If you're listening to your own heart, you're in serious trouble. Stop letting Walt Disney be your theologian. He's not a good pastor. Never was. Stop listening to your heart and start speaking the truth to your heart. Our desires are not wise. Your desires are not wise. They are not holy. Our desires are not loving and sacrificial. Our desires, left to themselves, are selfish and deceitful. Paul calls them deceitful lusts. I often tell couples in counseling, you know what the problem is? Your desires are lying to you. 
and you think they're telling you the truth. A person who views himself as his own master is a walking disaster. He's either a disaster now or he soon will be, but I guarantee you don't want to be around him. If he's his own end, if he's his own Lord, stay away. Destruction is soon to follow. Listening to your own advice, frankly, is what got you into the situation you find yourself in today. It's time to make a break with the old master. It's time to switch loyalties. It's time to repent. What does that look like? Well, we need look no further than the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, in the world's eyes, I mean, he was, he was the most successful, most fortunate, lucky, privileged man who ever lived during that time. He had his wits about him. He was intelligent. Everything he did seemed to turn to gold. He was rising up the religious ladder of the hierarchy of the Pharisees. He was well-respected, admired, feared. Well, one day he was walking down the Damascus Road and he came face to face with Christ. And everything changed. But you know what changed? It wasn't just his belief system. It wasn't just his theology that changed. Everything changed. Because on that day, he got for himself a new Lord a new master. He stopped being his own master. This is the way he says it, Philippians 3, verses 4 through 6. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more, circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, as a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law, Blameless. The question is, what is your confidence in? This was Paul's confidence. I was lucky enough to be born to Jewish parents. I was lucky enough to be circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel in the tribe of Benjamin. I became a Hebrew of Hebrews. If there ever was a Jew, I was him. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. I was the most scrupulous obeyer of the law. I was your quintessential law keeper. You wanted to know what good law keeping looked like? Look at me. You want to, look, you want to know what religious zeal looks like? Look at me. I was a persecutor of the church. I was there and was complicitous in the sin that caused Stephen's demise. I helped with his murder. And I would have murdered more because of my zeal for religion. And as for righteousness, there wasn't anybody more righteous than me if we're talking about self-righteousness. Every law that I knew I obeyed scrupulously and looked down on everyone who didn't obey as well as me. That's where his confidence was. It was in himself. But then Paul met Jesus on the Damascus Road. And Paul's confidence was in his powers, his talents, the talents of his flesh, verse 4, the ethnicity, 
his tribe, his law-keeping, his status as a Pharisee, verse 5, his zeal for God and his self-righteousness, verse 6. But notice how it all changed in verse 7. Here's what Paul says. But whatever things were gained to me, those I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. In other words, the things that I thought were to my credit, they just became dead to me. Something I wanted to be free from, not glory in anymore. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish. In the Greek, I love this word, it's so graphic, rubbish. Scubala. It means garbage, refuse, and really worse than that. I count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, being conformed to his death, so that I may attain the resurrection of the dead. What's he saying? I don't live for me anymore. And all that stuff that made me proud, I'm ashamed of it. I now have a new master. My confidence is no longer in me. My confidence is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I ask again, in what or in whom is your confidence? As you view yourself standing before God, what are you living for? It's great that you're religious, it's good. But you can be religious and still live for self and be on your way to hell. Paul did. You can be religious and be ruled by your own desires, ambitions, and cravings. Paul did. It's time to switch loyalties. It's time to turn your back on your old master and embrace Christ as your Lord. Christianity is not just something to believe. It is a person to follow. You say, I believe all this truth. Yes, but who is your confidence? Who is your master? Who is your Lord? Today, this very moment, God is inviting you to receive this treasure He's calling you to come to him as one who is, as Jesus said in the Beatitudes, poor in spirit. You know what that means? It means you come to God as one who views himself as spiritually bankrupt. All of the things that I thought were, were gain for me, it's loss. It's worthless in the eyes of God. I see that now. God, the only thing I have to offer you is my shame, my guilt, my sin. I have no goodness. I have no righteousness by which to recommend myself. All of my self-righteousness was nothing but the fruit of a sinful heart. My only hope is that you will cleanse me. My only hope is that you will accept me in Christ. God, I repent. I surrender the right to rule my life. From this moment forward, I am your servant. Please accept me. Please forgive me. Please change me. Make me your child. 
thank you for the cross of Christ and for the resurrection by which I am saved. And from this moment on, I am completely yours. And beloved, all of this is yours because of the resurrection. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I realize that there are many people in this room and who hear my voice right now who already know you. But this just seems to be a good morning to speak on your behalf to those who perhaps have thought they've known you, but who don't. When they examine their hearts right now, I pray they examine it against the light of the glory of your word. They will hear Jesus saying, if God were your father, you would love me. And in the integrity of their heart, they, they have to respond, I don't love Jesus. I wish I did, but I don't love him. If I were honest right now, I don't love him. They compare their life to the word of God and they hear, if God were your father, you would love his word. God, I don't love your word. It just seems to confuse me. It baffles me. I don't get it. It's boring to me. Father, I want to love your word, but I just don't. And you may hear the word of God say, if God were your father, you would, not, you would not love your sin. You would hate it and be quick to confess it. But in all honesty, you must say, I don't confess it. I try to hide it. I defend it. I blame shift. I do everything I can to keep from feeling guilty. And you hear the word of God say, if God was your father, prayer would be your delight. And in your heart of hearts, you say, I don't like to pray. I don't know true fellowship with Christ. I want to, but I don't. If God were your father, you would love rich, scripture-saturated fellowship with believers. That would be your joy. And in your heart of hearts, you say, spiritual conversation intimidates me. I don't enjoy it. 